Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Becky Vivi, in for Sasha Ann Simons. This is Reset. It's the end of the week, so you know the drill. It's time for our weekly news recap. Governor J.B. Pritzker is now requiring masks be worn in schools to help stop the spread of COVID-19. The governor says schools that don't comply could face regulatory action. What we think is going to happen is that schools will follow this, do the right thing. Again, this is about keeping our children and their families safe. Alapalooza is over. The four-day music festival has wrapped up, but the cleanup... It's just beginning. The Champaign-Urbana Health Department is urging anyone who attended Lollapalooza this past weekend to get a COVID-19 test because it will help shut down any local outbreaks before they can begin. So many stories to dive into, so let's get started. Joining us on the panel today is A.D. Quigg, government and politics reporter at Crane's Chicago Business. Welcome back, A.D. Thanks, Becky. And Tom McNamee, editorial page editor for the Chicago Sun-Times. Welcome, Tom. Yeah, thanks for being here. So renewed mask mandates have been in the news all week. Let's start with the governor's decision to now require masks of all staff and students pre-K through 12th grade statewide. A.D., this pandemic seems to be far from over. So what are we hearing from parents now and school districts and teachers? Right. It's been a mixed reaction. So over the summer, there were a lot of different messages from school districts about whether masks would be mandatory or recommended. Or uh, The governor kind of shut down all those discussions this week when he announced a couple days ago masks will have to be worn in daycares, grade and high schools across the state, public and private, and during extracurricular indoors like sports. So the Delta variant rise here is one of those reasons he's concerned, especially because children under 12 aren't eligible to be vaccinated. Um, hospitalizations, ICU rates have doubled from lows earlier this summer. If you're closely watching uh, the COVID count in the state, it looks pretty close to the last surge we had. And 96% of the people that are hospitalized are unvaccinated. So the reaction has been, like I said, mixed. There are some school districts Um, who hate being told what to do, who think it should be a local decision. We've heard that from some lawmakers across the state, too. Mm -hmm. But this did get the thumbs up from the Illinois Federation of Teachers um, in a few few districts where they said, we're glad this is taken out of our hands and uh, the governor decided for us. But there's been some passionate reactions and some interesting school board meetings, which have sometimes devolved into screaming matches. Yeah, there has certainly been some interesting school board meetings. Tom, this mask mandate is really causing a a political divide uh, between parents and politicians and school school boards. Um, What can you tell us about about what we're seeing play out now down at the local level? Yeah, well, I guess the question I always have is I follow this. And as we write on this, being an editorial page, we have points of view on it, is to what extent is the debate about health and to what extent is this just pure politics? And I think the frustration the governor's having here right now is that those people who say he's being too autocratic about this are frankly not not trustworthy partners in making these negotiations. A lot of downstate Republicans whose motivation seems more political 
than it does about trying to do what's best for the public health of every child and every person in this state. So when the governor says, for instance, that children have to wear masks in school and just makes that a rule, they argue, well, gee whiz, you should not be so autocratic about that. I understand that argument, but it would be a stronger argument if he had a uh, a trustworthy, reliable negotiating partner. Right. And the CDC guidance is if you're unvaccinated, you should still be wearing a mask. And if you're a kid under 12, you're unvaccinated. So I guess, um, A.D., I did want to ask about you mentioned the numbers of of hospitalizations and cases happening in a lot of unvaccinated people. Do we have num? Is it a lot of children, too? Are we seeing these cases go up in 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 kids? I've heard less about cases going up in kids and a lot more about just worries about younger people. So people in their 20s, 30s and 40s are often more hospitalized folks because they do have um, lower vaccination numbers. Um, the state has said vaccination numbers are staying steady instead of continuing to fall. Um, in other states, I've also heard that vaccination numbers are trending up because people are, in fact, freaked out about the Delta variant and have watched uh, friends and loved ones get vaccinated without incident. Um, but, of course, the, the big worry is variants and how much um, how much they might change as they continue to mutate in unvaccinated people. And the scary thing about Delta is how much more transmissible it is. So kids typically have not gotten as sick as older folks, but that risk of them transmitting to other people and transmitting possibly to parents or loved ones that aren't vaccinated is is uh, a consideration in this as well. Mm-hmm. It's higher with Delta. Now, we've got companies also stepping up with vaccine mandates. Advocate Aurora, Chicago-based United Airlines both announced they're requiring vaccinations or workers will risk losing their jobs. Um, AD, we're also hearing about labor shortages. So do you think that these mandates are going to be successful for these companies? It's It's tricky, right? And I reported on this specifically in healthcare a few months ago, um, very early on in the vaccine rollout, about 60 to 70% of hospital staff um, was vaccinated, which meant 30% was unvaccinated. And this is especially risky because you have healthcare workers interacting closely with patients, multiple patients across different um, practices that could be spreading infections. Um, But like you said, it's been hard to get staff to come back either because of folks moving on to other jobs or still collecting unemployment or worries about um, future shutdowns. Um, Unions have pushed back slightly against this, saying we shouldn't be mandating vaccines alone. We should be getting layered mitigations like mask wearing, hand washing, a certain amount of social distancing. Um, I'll be interested to see if any legal cases pop up saying, hey, these vaccines aren't fully FDA approved yet. You shouldn't be able to mandate them for certain workers like you can in some cases for flu vaccines. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be an interesting road in the next couple months because a lot of these mandates kick in in September and October to see how this will this will play out Mm -hmm. and which industries are happening you know advocate aurora obviously hospital united airlines an airline but um other companies maybe not so much now cnn made news for firing three unvaccinated employees who'd been coming into the office um tom do you think we're going to see more of that happening yeah, I do, actually, and it would be a welcome change. You know, last yesterday I was watching uh, Chicago Tonight on WTTW, and Jack Levin of the Chicagoland Chamber of Commerce was on, and I was very curious to see what Jack would say. He's a very strong advocate for the business community, uh, and, he's, and he has conservative instincts. And it was really interesting. Jack was making the argument 
which was terrific, that the business community is ready for this. That in many ways, the business community knows that they have to be a strong partner in doing what's necessary to combat this COVID-19 spread. And that, yes, you're going to see more businesses uh, cracking down, requiring employees to get the vaccine, or if not, to be tested on a regular basis. Uh, and I don't speak for the Chamber of Commerce, but the impression I got was that the mainstream business community understands the need for this. Mm-hmm. Tom, do you you know the Sun Times editorial you guys wrote about every government um, have having every government and business require the vaccine? Um, I know Secretary of State Jesse White told employees they'll have to get vaccinated or undergo regular testing. Um, I'm wondering if you've. D- you know, sort of thought through also the the legalities, as A.D. mentions, about government and private businesses requiring the vaccines of their workers and their their right or not right to do that? You know, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is that uh, employers do have that right to require certain standards of health and health care for employees. Uh, and, and once again, I'm sure that we've litigated the courts, but there's a long, strong tradition in this country. For instance, if children have to be vaccinated for things like polio in order to be in the public schools. Uh, and, you know, when you have a situation where something like 40 percent of workers in nursing homes have yet to get vaccinated, that's a public health crisis in this case. And when Genesis Healthcare requires that all 70,000 employees get vaccinated, that would seem to be a very reasonable condition of employment considering how the vac- considering how COVID-19 spreads. So I am not a lawyer, but everything I've read, everything I understand tells me that it is not the exception, but the rule that companies can have reasonable requirements such as this. Mm-hmm. Now, the state has tried, the state and the city have tried all sorts of incentives to get people to go get vaccines voluntarily. There's the lottery, you know, tickets to Six Flags, Lollapalooza, free haircuts. Um, Tom, would you say that the strategy for vaccination, the vaccination campaign has really shifted away from carrots now to sort of stick? I, I don't think either necessarily worked really well. Uh, the carrot, I, I, from my understanding, has had incremental improvement in getting people vaccinated. And certainly the, the, the threat, although I may sound like I'm pro-threat, uh, I'm not sure that worked either. What seems to work best, and this is where people of, of integrity have to step up, is people who are influential in certain communities have to step up and send the message. So, for instance, when the governor of Arkansas simply says flat out, it's time for everybody to get vaccinated, that carries a lot more weight than it would if it came from some liberal governor of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really going to change people's hearts and minds is not threats or carrots, but hearing this message from the people they listen to most closely. Mm-hmm. Right. Last weekend, as the Delta variant was surging, hundreds of thousands of music fans descended on Chicago for Lollapalooza. Health departments across the state are now urging those concert goers to get tested for COVID-19. A.D., what could the fallout be for uh, Mayor Lightfoot or Health Commissioner Dr. Allison Arwady if we do see a, a, an increase from Lollapalooza? I, it, this is like the biggest question I'm going to have in the next two or three weeks because it usually takes a couple weeks for 
uh, these numbers to show up if there is a surge. Um, now, of course, they said repeatedly, we believe this is safe. We believe Lollapalooza organizers have put in a good system. Um, they reported 90% plus of Lollapalooza attendees were vaccinated. Um, but the interesting part is going to be, are we going to know and how are we going to know? Mm-hmm. Um, contact tracing in the city of Chicago has not been so great. And, of course, um, people come from all over to go to Lollapalooza. Um, every once in a while we hear about uh, the CDC maybe investigating some type of massive outbreak, but when you've got 100,000 people packing into Grant Park every day, um, you wonder how easy it will be to track. Um, but, yes, of course, local local health departments are saying if you are at this thing, if you are packed in with people, regardless of being outdoors, which is generally more safe, um, like we said earlier, this Delta variant is much more transmissible, and outdoors is one thing, but as close as people were and as few people were wearing masks based on photos and videos, you've got to think there was some level of spread. Even if uh, Lollapalooza people that were vaccinated weren't uh, being infected, they could still be transmitting it to others when they go home. Right, right. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to... Um Something that one of your colleagues wrote, A.D., about how devastating the pandemic has been for restaurants. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what, what that story found? Right. My colleague, Ellen Marotti, did this great story based on uh, research from a firm called Data Central. Uh, it found in the past 16 months, about 19% of Chicago restaurants have closed. That's more than uh, 1,200 restaurants permanently closing. Um, in the 16 months before that pandemic, that number was 9%. Um, in collar counties, 12% of restaurants closed. That's up from 7% pre-pandemic. And this is something she's been watching closely. I've been watching closely. Um, the Illinois Restaurant Association has been predicting throughout the pandemic that 20% of all of Illinois' 25,000 restaurants could close forever. Um, that doesn't mean closures won't keep piling up in the weeks and months to come, especially if Diners stay away because of the Delta variant. Um, restaurants already run on really thin margins, high operating costs, and are having difficulty, like we talked about earlier, getting workers to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, for now, the city has avoided imposing extra social distancing requirements or limits that um, really hobbled restaurant operations, but I'm not sure how long that will last, and I'm also not sure um, what kind of financial shape a lot of these still recovering restaurants are in. So I'm, I'm worried this number is going to creep higher. And what it tells me, and I think what we understand, is that um, it's not a question of whether restaurants should remain open without masks or this or that. It's really a question of we need to do what's best for public health. We need to listen to Dr. Fauci's. But we can't deny the devastating impact this is having on businesses. And restaurants are at the front of this, and there's simply going to have to be more federal assistance. We're not done. We're not out of this yet by far. We're right back into it. And Washington has to think about that way. They have to think about another stimulus package that puts restaurants, makes restaurants a priority, makes landlords a priority, makes mom-and-pop businesses a priority, because this is beyond their control, and it is devastating. Mm-hmm. Guys, I want to turn to some law enforcement issues that were in the news this week. Uh, there was a change to the state's gun laws. Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a law now requiring universal background checks, even for private sales. The governor says that had been a loophole. Tom, can you tell us a little bit more about this new law? Well, you know, it, it's pretty basic in a way. First of all, it's a state law, not federal. I wish it were federal, but the point is that uh, we, if you if you uh, if you go and buy a gun at a gun shop anywhere in the sh- in Illinois, you have to not only have a 
firearm identification cards. You also have to submit to a background check. And they look to see a couple of things, whether you have a criminal background, whether or not there are various restraints against you by courts, and whether or not you have a perhaps a psychological history that makes you unfit for having a gun. These things are all very formal on record, and you can look them up. If you buy a gun, though, through a private means, literally at a gun show, you can do this, or even at a garage sale, you don't have to do anything. You can, you, you're supposed to have a firearm identification cards in some of these cases, but you don't have any kind of a background check. It's something we have advocated for a long time, although it's one of many things that has to be done. And to me, it's a big deal. I think this is, is a, a significant step forward practically and symbolically. If I may say, Becky, the one thing I would add is it's just one small step. I think the more significant thing that was done this summer is when the Department of Justice came out and they said that the U.S. Attorney's offices and ATF agents will be prosecuting more people for straw purchases, mm. which is when somebody goes in and buys a gun from a gun shop or a bunch of guns, a lot of guns, and then on behalf of other people who cannot legally buy them themselves. Right. And to me, if the DOJ goes after those folks, that will be the bigger significant piece of progress on the gun front this summer. Because those straw purchases would qualify under these private sales, right? Well, no. Or are uh, they- well, I guess it's technically private sales. What it is, you'll have somebody from Chicago go over to Indiana and buy 100 guns from an unethical mm. gun dealer and say, yeah, I'm buying these guns for myself. Obviously not. Maybe not 100 guns, maybe 10, maybe 15. And then they drive back and they sell them to anybody on the street, which I guess you could call a private sale. But they're really sort of more like uh, black market illegals. Yeah. They're not really what the governor's new law has in mind. AD law enforcement um, made headlines this week when felony charges were brought against a Chicago police officer for the 2020 shooting of an unarmed man inside the downtown Grand Station of the Red Line. This was an incident that a witness caught on video. Folks may remember it. Um, AD, could you tell us a little bit more about those charges? Right. So this officer, this was such like a, a social media firestorm because mm-hmm. Grand is such a Busy station. Um, oft, busy station, a really busy station. Um, so this officer was on duty, uh, shot and wounded a man at that station. Uh, that officer is claiming they fired in self-defense when a man resisted arrest. Um, that officer was trying to protect herself when she shot the man. Um, but the video evidence seems to indicate something else. Um, and this is just a, an interesting case in it's not like what we've seen in typical police-involved shootings, which usually happen in, in some kind of hot pursuit. This was um, an initiated arrest. And the fact that it was so shocking because it was a, a gun fired inside an enclosed space with so many other people around. I think at the time the mayor said, you know, we should take a close look at this because um, I can't think of a situation where an officer should fire a gun with so many other people around. So we'll see if the, if the self-defense argument plays out. Right. And we understand that the Ariel Roman, the man who was shot, filed a lawsuit against the city, I believe. Tom, did you did you have something to add? I was just going to say, I think what A.D. just said about uh, the responsible, the irresponsible behavior of shooting a gun off in a very crowded public place. Um, There's it, 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 a lot of things about that video that are very disturbing um, in terms of the uh, 
action taken against the person, I think it was Mr. Roman, but also that second shot where you just simply fire up an escalator in a subway station in Chicago, that is a very scary thing to be doing. You know, to just be shooting up an escalator in a public place like that. If I may say, there's one positive or there's one really interesting thing about this, which is that charges were filed at all against the police officer. You know, uh, it isn't that long ago when it would have been very difficult for any sort of charges to be brought against a Chicago police officer for anything. Uh, In this case, they did bring charges against this one particular officer. Uh, and I think that's a significant change in how things happen in this city. Mm-hmm, certainly. Well, another big headline this week is politicians getting into trouble. And before we turn to <laughs> Illinois, poli- yeah, if before we turn to Illinois politicians, uh, Governor Pritzker weighed in on one of the many people this week who, um, as one of the people who weighed in and saying that New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, should step down Um A.D., were you surprised that Pritzker weighed in on that call for Cuomo to step down in the wake of the uh, sexual assault allegations against him? I'm not surprised. Um, I was a little surprised that his reply was so brief. He basically said, yes, Governor Cuomo should resign. That's all he said, especially given um, everything that's happened in the Me Too movement in Illinois and in Springfield specifically. Um, The big culture change that had to be grappled with um, over the past few years that has a little bit from the conversation, but Pritzker is just one in a big chorus of Democrats nationally saying that Cuomo should step down. Um, a five-month investigation concluded this week saying Cuomo sexually harassed nearly a dozen women, uh, ranging from inappropriate touching to suggestive comments or comments about their appearance, and they were mostly state employees. So this was um, this was a workplace harassment scenario from one of the most powerful people in New York. Um, and this isn't the only crisis Cuomo is facing. There's his administration's handling of COVID deaths at state nursing homes, mm-hmm. uh, whether he used state resources to promote his book. Uh, we should say Cuomo has denied the worst of the allegations and kind of waved off the rest by saying he's an affectionate person. And he has resisted efforts to step down, but he, he faces impeachment from the state assembly there. Tom, do you think Cuomo is going to resign? Yeah, I think he's going to be forced to resign. I can't imagine he won't. On the other hand, you know, he's got the example of Donald Trump, that if you just deny and say no and wait it out, the world changes and move on. So, But my gut says he will. And, and you know, frankly, his his explanation is difficult to accept. He's not at 110 years old. He He's part of a, a generation of men who have been schooled that the kind of things that he's been doing mm-hmm. are simply inappropriate. That, and, and he's a bright guy. So it's, it's very curious that he can, would, that kind of behavior would go on. Uh, I, I just don't understand the guy. And guys, our own former governor, Rod Blagojevich, was back in the spotlight this week. Tom, why was uh, our, our former governor in the headlines again? Uh, because he's trying to get his law license back, and uh, and and he and he would like to run for office again. Although he he, he didn't say he would, he didn't rule it out. You know, uh, Rod Blagojevich is this person who shows he thrives on public attention, like some other politicians we can name. And I think it's just very very difficult for him to to not, to be in the shadows. I also think from some, some of what I've read, he's probably struggling to to make a living. And I'm, I'm sorry about that. You know, I'm, I know we should take uh, joy in that, that he's struggling that way. But Rod Begoyf is just a guy who just likes to be in the limelight. And, and if he gets his 
and he's allowed to run for office again, and he's successful in his suit, he sure will, no question. Now, there was another former jailed politician in the news. That's the former comptroller for Dixon, Illinois, 90 minutes west of Chicago. She was released halfway through her near 20-year sentence for embezzling $54 million. Um, Tom, were you surprised that she's gotten released? Yeah, it seemed like she got up pretty quickly. And I'm still curious to know, they said it was a compassionate release in part at least. And I didn't see, I have not seen an explanation of why it was a compassionate uh, release, what was going on there. Uh, but I was very surprised. She's supposed to get 19 years and seven months. And she's getting out, I think, about seven years or eight years. Um, you know, it's it just white-collar crime should matter. Stealing $54 million from a little town should matter. I'm not sure what the justice or the justification was for releasing her quite this early. Mm-hmm. Well, pivoting, marijuana is in the news again this week. AD, big names, winning the license lottery, the pot shop license lottery. Uh, tell us who who's in that list. It's a very interesting list. We've got... <laughs> Uh, Friends of the Cavalieri's, the Skinny Pop founder. Um, and it's just been an insane roller coaster year with cannabis. We waited more than a year for licenses to be rolled out by the state to open up new dispensaries, craft grow operations, other weed businesses. Um, and I think while some of the focus has been on who these interesting winners are, I think we also have to focus on whether the state fixed its botched effort to ensure diverse participation in the, this last round of cannabis licenses. Um, now that they've been doled out, there's nothing stopping some of these winners from selling them off to owners with deeper pockets or super rich people. Um, former state Senator Ricky Hendon has been kind of the de facto spokesman for equity applicants who said they got basically screwed over in the last round. Um, and now he says smaller companies, including his, are listening to a bunch of offers to sell their licenses uh, for anywhere between $1 and $3 million or as much as $15 million. And this, of course, goes against the whole spirit of the debate for the past year to build wealth, generational wealth, among people of color especially. Um, but in some cases, because of COVID, um, the wait for those licenses has been costly, and some of these folks might just need to sell to recoup their losses. Right. Is, and that's allowed underneath the laws? Yes, I believe sales can start in December, um, and there might have to be some returning of certain grants, but yes, they, they can sell. Okay. Pivoting again, the Chicago Park District lifeguard scandal is continuing. It came out this week that Chicago Park's chief, uh, Michael Kelly, did not act for six weeks after receiving harassment complaints about lifeguards. Tom, how damaging would you say this is for the city and for Mayor Lightfoot? Uh, for Mayor Lightfoot, I'm not sure. Uh, we'll, we'll see how much she owns this one. Although today's report, which I heard when I was sitting on the phone <laughs> with you to end the show, that Lori Lightfoot said that progress has been made and they're taking the appropriate action. I, I, you know, here's the thing. There, there are just a ton of unanswered questions about this. Mm-hmm. Why did it take six weeks after the uh, head of the parks was uh, notified by this woman of these sexual assault allegations. Why did it take six weeks to send those to the uh, the inspector general? Uh, what, who, who else knew? WBZ reported that as many as a dozen or up to a dozen other women now have come forward to your reporters 
and said that they too were assaulted or had these issues, I should say, going back decades, that this is not a new thing. And I guess the question I would have is, did any Bates of Park District pick up the phone and get those kinds of calls that you got at WBZ? Um, I guess what's most disappointing to me is I don't see a an approach of openness by public agency to inform the public about what exactly happened and what they're doing about it. And that's today's Saturday edition of the Reset Podcast. Sasha Ann Simons is back on Monday with more of Reset's series, Reimagine Chicago. But that's it for today. I'm Becky Vivi. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here on Monday. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.